we believe that happiness is found in feeling good, feeling good about ourselves, feeling good about the future, feeling good about our circumstances, feeling good about our standing in the community. And then we look to fill our lives with pleasurable experiences because pleasure makes us feel good. I mean, think about all the things in your life that you love to do, all the pleasure, and ask yourself, why do you love it so? Because of the way it makes you feel, the sensation that it gives you. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. Now this morning, I know you're here because I indicated in my email that the message is the legacy we leave behind. And as I, as I get going, as I get started, you're going to probably begin to ask the question, where is he going with this? Now, all I would ask you is to be patient because at the end I'm going to tie all of this together and hopefully um, it will uh, be coherent. The message will be coherent. But where I want to start is to uh, share with you a quote from Blaise Pascal, famous French philosopher, mathematician, and many of you know I quote him often, and I do because I feel like he has such a keen insight into the human heart. I want to read one quote that he shares. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to pursue this end. The pursuit of happiness. Those are familiar words. They're in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what is happiness? I mean, can you define it? If your son or daughter came to you and said, Dad, what, is, what does it really mean to be happy? Could you articulate a good definition? You know, it's hard for us to get our arms around that thought. We use that term a lot. In fact, I even went to the, uh, to the dictionary. I even went, I have an 1828 Webster's. I even went back to that dictionary. And it, the definitions in the dictionary don't serve us real well. There's five or six definitions. Now, our social scientists, our psychologists and sociologists define happiness as a sense of subjective well-being in our lives. But what's interesting, and you may not be aware of it, is that there has been, over particularly the last 25 years, a significant amount of research done at some of our finest institutions, the University of Chicago, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, studying this issue of, of what they call subjective well-being, and what they've attempted to try to understand is the relationship between happiness and rising prosperity. Is there, what is that relationship they've tried to figure out? And what's happened is, is that the results have been quite baffling to the researchers. Because what they've observed is that as, as prosperity has risen in the Western world, instead of this increasing sense of well-being, the researchers are seeing that it declines. 
I want to read to you a quote from Greg Easterbrook. He writes for the New Republic magazine as well as uh, Atlantic Monthly and Newsweek. He makes this observation. He says, people are not feeling better today, but worse. Throughout the United States and Europe, the incidence of clinical melancholy has been rising in eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. Adjusting for population growth, unipolar depression, which is simply the condition in which a person always feels blue, listen to this, is today 10 times as prevalent as it was 50 years ago. Which would lead you to ask, what is that all about? What I found really interesting was that a Princeton professor, a guy named Daniel Kahneman, who is no slouch, this guy won a Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. He and another researcher spent the better part of two decades, 20 years of their lives, studying and observing subjective well-being in people's lives. And after 20 years, they abandoned the project because, listen to this, they could never come up with any conclusive insights regarding people's happiness. There's a fascinating book that has come out. It's titled, The Progress Paradox. And I find it interesting, the subtitle is, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And so much of the research that I just mentioned comes out of this book. And one of the main premises of this book is that we as human beings living in the modern world equate happiness with how we feel. In other words, we, we believe that happiness is found in feeling good. Feeling good about ourselves, feeling good about the future, feeling good about our circumstances, feeling good about our standing in the community, and then we look to fill our lives with pleasurable experiences because pleasure makes us feel good. I mean, think about all the things in your life that you love to do, all the pleasure, and ask yourself, why do you love it so? Because of the way it makes you feel, the sensation that it gives you. And so what I've concluded is that modern people have the tendency to elevate the pursuit of good feelings into a philosophy of life. And because of this, I contend that this explains, and I'm going to go through this, explains the baffling data that the researchers are coming up with. We should be happier, you would think, with all this rising prosperity and all this opportunity for pleasure in our lives. I want to read to you a quote from a noted therapist who says this. <clears throat> the great mistake of modern man is to confuse pleasurable experiences and feeling good with happiness. After 20 years of counseling, I can tell you that the main thrust of too many lives is an overemphasis 
on feeling good than living wisely. In the process, a life of character is often abandoned for the pursuit of self-gratification. The result is a life full of thrills and good feelings, but eventually it is accompanied by a host of destructive consequences. And yet people will continue to make that trade-off and then will complain bitterly about the price they have to pay. You know, over the years, um, as I've observed men's lives, as I've talked in counseling situations, as I've watched and talked to them about their, their children who are, raising, who are being raised in a very difficult culture, I've noticed that there are these three natural tendencies that tend to creep into our lives if we allow the pursuit of good feelings and pleasurable experiences to dominate our lives. And I want to share them with you real quickly. The first natural tendency is that we develop a lack of self-discipline in our lives, a lack of self-restraint. Anything hard and rigorous does not produce good feelings. We seem to abandon. And what we fail to realize is that the heart of character is this ability to restrain our desires. A second tendency is we develop the tendency to not want to confront the painful issues and the problems in our lives. That's what amazes me. How many people who have real issues in their life and they won't deal with them because they know to deal with them is painful. And that'll interrupt their good feelings, their feelings of happiness. And they live with this idea that if we leave our problems alone, if we leave the difficult issues of our lives alone, maybe they'll go away. And then finally, we have the tendency of becoming absorbed with ourselves and our personal happiness. In other words, it becomes more important than anything else or anyone else in our lives. Now, I think you can guess what the ultimate outcome is here. Let me ask you this. What happens to a person who has no self-discipline in their lives, who doesn't confront the painful issues of their lives, and is totally absorbed with themselves? totally egocentric. And there are adult men that live this way. What do you think happens? It's a perfect recipe for misery, unhappiness. And, and so often, men that sit across, they don't know why. And the researchers don't seem to be able to figure it out either. And what I find, then usually men have two choices. The first choice is to realize and conclude that they're on the wrong path and they change course. Now, often they go get help. I mean, that's why I find men sometimes sitting across from me. The other is to try harder to find that happy life that seems so elusive. And we push the envelope. And what this explains is how people self-destruct. And let me just say this real quickly. Self-destruction does not come generally as a flash in the pan. Men very slowly and very subtly self-destruct. I was reminded of a great quote by J. Arthur James Agee, who died at an early age from living hard and fast. But he made this great insight right before he died. He said this, 
God remains vivid and unfathomable, but he does not interfere with the laws of self-destruction. And as I share that, I'm reminded of Oscar Wilde's chilling words at the end of his life in his book, De Profundis. He says this, terrible is what the world did to me. What I did to myself was far more terrible still. You see, guys, we're free in this life to choose our lifestyle, to choose our priorities, to choose how we spend our time. We're, cho- we're free to make any actions that we want to make. And yet what we're not free to choose, and hear this, this is important, what we're not free to choose is the consequences of those actions. You see, the consequences are governed by the laws of God that have been placed by Him in the universe. Now, with that in mind, I want to shift and change to a completely contrasting perspective. Because when you look at life and happiness and feelings through the lens of the Bible, you get quite a startling contrast And I want to read to you two verses from the Gospel of Mark. And listen to Jesus' words as we think about our personal happiness and feeling good. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. You know, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you see Jesus continually make comments like, deny yourself, die to self, give up your life, surrender your life. And you know, if you think about it, this is diametrically opposed to a culture that's been raised on slogans like indulge yourself, delight yourself, grab all the gusto you can. If it feels good, do it. And for this reason, for many men, Jesus appears to be a thief that wants to steal our lives from us, who wants to steal our happiness from us. Is that the way you see him? He then comes along in John 10, 10, though, and says this. The thief comes to steal and destroy. I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Notice he doesn't say, I came that you might have happiness. Notice he doesn't say, I came that you might have good feelings. He says, I came to give you real life. And what's interesting, I did some, uh, a study on this uh, a few days ago, and it depends on the translation of the Bible that you use, but the most, probably the most popular Bible that's used today is called the New International Version. And did you know that in the New International Version, the word happy or happiness is not found? It's not in there. Now, in the New American Standard and in the King James and a couple other, there is a word, there's a Greek word and there's a Hebrew word, 
that literally means to be blessed. But in those translations, one verse in the New Testament and a handful of the, in the Old, it says, happy is the man who. The NIV says, blessed is the man. But I share that because obviously the Bible does not seem to address the happiness of man. And as you read the Gospels, you also notice Jesus doesn't seem to be real concerned about how his disciples feel. You never see him say, you know, guys, how are you feeling today? You know, he always seems to address more substantive issues. Now, what I want to do real briefly is share with you a verse that completely transformed my idea of the happiness in life that we all seem to want and yearn. The happiness that Pascal spoke of in his quote. And the verse comes in the book of Romans. It's chapter 8, verse 28. I know a lot of you probably are familiar with it or heard it. It says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The first time I ever heard that, I thought, what a great verse. What a great promise. That as a Christian, God is causing everything in my life to work together for my good. The problem, looking back, was His definition or his interpretation of good and my interpretation of good were completely different. Because to me, what was good for me, good feelings, comfort, prosperity, success, that's what I wanted. And so that, in my mind, is what was good. And yet, if you read a little further in that same chapter, particularly the next verse, it says, he kind of puts his finger on what's good. That you be conformed to the image of my son. That you become Christ-like. And that wasn't what I was looking to hear. This idea of becoming Christ-like. You see, our lives are so focused on what we're feeling and what we're experiencing while Christ is focusing on the type of men that we are becoming. And there is a huge difference. One of my favorite quotes outside of the Bible is Alexander Solzhenitsyn's words when he came out of prison. Solzhenitsyn won a Pulitzer Prize for Literature. He gave that famous commencement speech at Harvard in 1978, a world split apart. So it was very controversial. He spent eight years in a Russian prison because he wrote a few disparaging words about Stalin. He went into prison as an atheist. He came out of prison eight years later as a Christian. And you would think you would see a bitter, angry man. And yet listen to the words that came out of his mouth. He said, bless you, prison. I bless you for being in my life. For there lying on rotting prison straw, I learned that the object of life was not prosperity and all that goes with it, as I had grown up believing, but it is the maturing of the soul. You see, this is the problem we have today. Most men live their lives for the enjoyment and pleasure they experience, where God is much more interested in the development of our hearts and our souls. 
And I think the problem that we struggle with is this thought of becoming like Christ. It doesn't have a great deal of appeal to men. It didn't have, for, for years, it didn't have any appeal to me at all. Because in my mind, to be like Jesus meant I had to be more religious. And everything in my life that I enjoyed was off limits. And that, in my mind, was a picture of what Christ-likeness was. And yet, if you study the Gospels, if you study the life of Jesus, one of the first things you'll notice, he wasn't very religious at all. He was very godly. He was God himself, the second person of the Trinity. But he wasn't religious at all. In fact, those who were religious found Christ to be quite contemptible. I mean, think about it. He didn't follow their traditions. They didn't like who he hung out with. They were always criticizing the people he hung out with and ministered to. He spoke harshly to them, not with the respect they felt like they deserved. And then they turned around, and before they knew it, all their followers were following him. And so what I've learned over the years is this. Christ-likeness, in my opinion, there's probably more to it, but in my mind, Christ-likeness involves three things. Taking on His character, growing in His wisdom, and developing the type of love and compassion that He had for people. Now, obviously, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to just touch on those three qualities of Christ-likeness that I believe God desires to see come to pass in our lives character. We're a culture that's clamoring for character. I mean, just today, think of the, the, the trials that are going on in Birmingham. The one, I, I'm not sure where Bernie Evers is being tried. The, this, the deal up in Memphis. All about character. And you know, it's interesting, in Second Peter, the first chapter, Peter lists a number of character qualities, and he talks about the fact that these qualities should be increasing in our lives. And the point that he makes is, your character is not something that is static. You can be a man of strong character and over time easily be corrupted. And when we think of character, I think we generally think of honesty and integrity and, and selflessness and hard work and fairness. But I believe the most important character quality is what Andrew Murray calls it's the root of all virtues, which you see clearly in Christ, is humility. You see, guys, our character is so important because it forms the basis of respect and trust, which is the crucial foundation of any relationship, particularly marriage, but also any business relationship you have. And what happens is our, our character serves as a compass in our lives. It guides us through life. And ultimately it allows us to know who we really are and what our lives are all about. Ravi Zacharias shares of a businessman, very successful man, who lost, very well thought of in the community. He lost his moral compass. And listen to what he said to Zacharias. He said, looking back on his life, he shared with me his memories of a life morally mangled. 
He said, it started with my imagination that reinforced certain wrong desires. Then, having made, having made repeated choices that were clearly wrong, in betrayal after betrayal, I convinced myself that what I had indulged in, I really needed. The more I convinced myself that I needed it, listen to this, I soon redefined who I was as a person. Now as I look at what I have become, I can no longer live with myself. I hate who I am. I'm emotionally running, but I do not know where to go. Wisdom. Wisdom. You know, Proverbs 3, Solomon tells us, that wisdom is more valuable than jewels, and nothing you desire in life compares with it. Nothing. Think about what you desire in life. He says nothing compares to the great value of wisdom. And of course, the question that I always, what is wisdom? I'm going to share with you J.I. Packer's definition, because I think it's, it's, it's really good. He says, it's the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goals in life, together with the surest means of attaining it. Do we need wisdom in our lives? I'd also say wisdom is the ability to understand life and its complexities. It's the ability to discern the true principles of life that God has woven into our existence. <clears throat> but if you go back to Packer's definition, it's more than just the power to see. Notice what he says. It's the inclination to choose. Wisdom is more than seeing and understanding. Wise people live out their wisdom. They live wisely. They follow truth. Unfortunately, modern life doesn't seem to emphasize the importance of it. In fact, I would say it seems to de-emphasize the importance of wisdom and understanding because it doesn't allow for us to really develop it. Several years ago, there was a really good article in the Wall Street Journal by Anthony O'Hare, who's the director of Britain's Royal Academy of Philosophy. And listen to what he said. In this article, there was this basic premise that he built his, it was an editorial in the journal. He says, modern man seems to hate solitude and the time to reflect on life. Whether it's the TV, the computer, the Palm Pilot, the cell phone, now the iPod, or whatever. He says, modern people are in a desperate search for diversion so that they don't have to reflect and deal with the important issues of life. One of the great books in the 1980s was Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Highly recommend the book. But there's a very short forward that, to be quite honest, I think is the best part of the book. <clears throat> and I want to read a couple of paragraphs from it. We were keeping our eye on the year 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy was held. Wherever else the terror, terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. Remember the book by George Orwell, 1984? Big Brother, 
communism. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling book, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. You see, Orwell warned that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, the communists. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there'd be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and self-centeredness. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive audience. Listen to this. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with our feelings. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley and not Orwell was right. You know, that, in my mind, confirms how our love for pleasure and good feelings can subvert a life of substance. The final Christ-like characteristic is deepening love and compassion for others. Now, I could spend so much time on this issue, but I'm just going to make one quick comment. All of our Bible studies have just read this book, Season of Life. Um, it's, it's a fabulous book. It's an easy read. I highly recommend it. It's about, primarily it's a football player, a guy named Joe Ehrman. There was a big write-up in Parade Magazine about him. He was an All-American football player at Syracuse, and then he went on and was an All-Pro with the Baltimore Colts. And he talks, it's really about raising men, young men, young boys into men. I strongly recommend the book. But what he, one of the things that he points out, and I think is true, he says, men do not know how to love very well. In fact, he said, we particularly don't know how to love other men and have friendships of real substance. Let me read to you just a couple of thoughts. This guy, Jeffrey Marks, who wrote the book, continually has these interviews <clears throat> with Ehrman. He says this, Joe cited a staggering statistic from a study he once read about. The typical male over the age of 35 has what psychologists would say is less than one genuine friend, not even one person on average with whom he can reveal his true self and share his deepest, most intimate thoughts. He has no other man that he can really love. And he said because of that, he said, we're isolated and alone. 
it ends up putting you in a situation where you're always hiding. You're always hiding who and what you really are. And if you're hiding that, you really can't connect with anyone. With anyone. Now, how well do we love? You know, if you think about this, character, wisdom, love and compassion. You know, guys, this is what ultimately, in my opinion, will determine the quality of our lives. And this is a crucial point that I want to drive home. In the world that we live in, for, for most people, happiness is the goal of life. And yet it remains so elusive. And I think the research bears this out. And let me tell you why. God, listen to this, God never intended for happiness to be the goal of life. Our goal should be become like Christ. Because he says, that's what a real man is. And he says what happens is in the process, the byproduct of becoming Christ-like is a meaningful, high quality of life. And you can call it happiness if you want to, but it's important to realize it's a byproduct of the men that we become. But this also, if you think about it, determines how we'll be remembered. I mean, think about it. This ultimately is what our legacy is all about. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Peter Drucker. Amazing man. He's like 92, 93 years old today. Still has a very sharp mind. He's probably considered one of the, one of the great leaders in business as far as managing and leadership. A couple of years ago, at the age of 90, he wrote an article for The Economist magazine. Uh, he was in Forbes not long ago. Amazing man. Listen to it. He says, when I was 13 years old, I had an inspiring teacher of religion who one day went right through the class of boys asking each one, what do you want to be remembered for? None of us, of course, could give an answer. So he chuckled and said, I didn't expect you to be able to answer it. But if you can't answer it by the end of your life, you will have wasted your life. We eventually had a 60th reunion of that high school class. Most of us were still alive. But we hadn't seen each other since we graduated. And so the talk at first was a little stilted. And then one of the fellows asked, Do you remember Father Flegler and that question that he asked us? We all remembered it. And each one said it had made all the difference to him although they didn't really understand that until much later in life. And Drucker says this, I'm always asking men that question. What do you want to be remembered for? It's a question that induces you to renew yourself because it pushes you to see yourself as a different person, the person that you can become. You know, when we're dead and gone, I can promise you this. People won't remember us for the houses we lived in, the cars we drove, 
what we accomplished in our business lives, they will primarily remember us for who we are, the kind of men we were, character, wisdom, love, and compassion. And if you think about it, furthermore, if that's what our lives are about, or if that's the kind of men we become, think about it. Our character, our wisdom, and our love and compassion for others, it will naturally impact the lives of other people. We will naturally be involved in the lives of other people. And in the end, as someone has said, our lives will be known by the impact we have had on other people. And that's why I'm convinced, I love this quote from Henry Adams. I quoted it back in the spring when we met. He says, a teacher, a mentor, anybody that's influencing others, he says, they affect eternity because they never know where their influence will end. When you impact somebody else's life, you never know how they're going to turn and impact someone else. It's kind of that compounding effect. And then if you take this from the Christian perspective, it can be taken a step further. This is a quote from Max Anders. He says, everything God does is eternally significant. And when we are submissive to what He is seeking to accomplish, we find ourselves participating in the eternal purposes of God. I mean, what an incredible thought to leave a legacy that is eternally significant. You know, over the last few years, I've shared this message just kind of a one-on-one -on -one with men that I meet with. This issue of Christ-likeness character, wisdom, love and compassion. You know what? I have yet to meet a man that didn't want that for their lives. I've never heard him I say, you know, that, I'm not interested in that. I find that it resonates. It's something that men re realize, that's really what I want for my life. But this is where the real problem comes. These are things that cannot be self-generated. It's not like something that you can make a New Year's resolution. I mean, think about it. This year, I'm going to be more loving to my wife, my children, and the people at the office. I mean, seriously, do you really think you can pull it off by pure effort and pure willpower? So you see, the problem is God is the source of love. He says, we love because He first loved us. He's the source of wisdom. It says, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Scripture is replete with verses about God strengthening our character. He provides the strength through His grace. And the Apostle Paul tells us the key to seeing this come to pass in our lives is Christ living in us. He puts it this way in the book of Colossians. Christ in you is your hope. Christ living in you is your hope. And what I see happen 
And I think you can maybe relate this. For so many, Christianity is about the external. It's the external actions of my life. That's what Christianity is all about. Going to church. Doing good deeds. Giving to charity. This is what Christianity is. It's not. True Christianity is about the life of God in the soul of man. It's Christ in us. And therefore, guys, we must surrender our hearts to Him and receive Him by faith into our lives. For when we do, He forgives us of our sin. He says He puts His Spirit in us. He gives us a new heart. And He begins a process of transformation as we grow in our relationship with Him. Dallas Willard says it beautifully. I love Willard. He's one of the most brilliant men I've read. He was uh, head of the philosophy department at USC for years. And he's also a very devoted Christian. And his, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, listen to what he says. The change that Jesus brings is in the first place and continuously a change of the human heart or spirit. His is a change of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of the soul. I want to conclude with one final illustration. And it comes from a man whose books had a major impact on my life. And many of you may have read him, uh, Bob Buford. His latest book is called Finishing Well. And this illustration is in, in one of his earlier books, but he brings it out again because... He says, this was the turning point in my life. Now, Buford was an extremely successful man. He owned television stations throughout the state of Texas. And he said, about 20 years ago, and I guess he's probably 65, so maybe in his mid-40s, he said, I had a meeting with a guy, Michael Kami. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing him right. K-A-M-I. One of the country's top strategic planners. I made an appointment with Mike to explore my own future plans. I think he was kind of like a personal coach, maybe. I wanted to get his professional advice about some of the options I was examining. During the course of the conversation, Mike asked me to describe my basic interests and motivations. So I began telling him about all the things that interested me. But suddenly Mike stopped me in mid-sentence. And he asked me a question that changed my life. What's in the box? What's in the box? The question took me by surprise. I didn't get, to get it at first. In the box? What does that mean? So I asked him, what do you mean by that, Mike? He said, what's central to your life at this point? 
If there were only room for one thing in your life, what would it be? And then he took a small pencil and sketched out a small square on a sheet of paper and said, from what you're telling me, that's interesting, Mike was not a religious man. He just was an observer and obviously he had a very sharp mind. He says, from what you're telling me, Bob, there are two things at the top of your list of priorities. Your religious faith and your business. Mike indicated that the shorthand for that was a dollar sign and a cross. And he pointed at the box and said, before I can help you decide how to focus your interests, you have to decide what's in the box. Would it be the dollar sign or the cross? Suddenly I knew I had a choice to make. I'd never been confronted with that. Now and then, in the midst of life's, life's complexities, we come to a point where the options are limited and clear. And this was one of those moments for me. What would it be for me? More money, more success, or more energy transferred to the calling I sensed so strongly? I considered those two options for several minutes, which seemed like an eternity. And then I said, well, if you put it that way, it's the cross. And then I reached over to pencil in a cross in Mike's box. Buford goes on to say, that doesn't mean that my business wasn't important. Or other things in my life weren't important. He said what Mike was trying to get him to do was to identify what is my primary loyalty in life. And you know, that's a great question. It's a question we all should ask ourselves. But let me tell you what's more significant. We all need to answer the question. It's easy to say, oh, that's a great question. I challenge you this morning. Answer the question. What is my primary loyalty in life? What's at the core of who I am? What's in the box? Is it money? Is it prestige and success? Is it the pleasures of life? There's something in the box for each of us. And I would just say this morning, if it's not Christ, I want to challenge you to give Him preeminence in your life. Because when God made us, it was His intention for Christ to be in the box. Let's pray. Lord, we realize that this is a huge issue in our lives. What is our primary loyalty? Maybe we don't ever think about it. Maybe this is the first time we've ever thought about it. Maybe we struggle with it, and yet we thank you for the struggle. 
Lord, I pray that if there's any man today that realizes that I want you in the box, that they'd realize all it requires is surrender of their hearts. Lord, I want your forgiveness. I want you in the box. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've shown us how to live, and that you've shown us what really matters, and that ultimately your desire is that we not only know you and live for you, but that we live in relationship with you, and through that relationship, our lives would be transformed. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.